Good morning, church. What a blessing to get to raise our voices together and offer praise to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you have a Bible, please open it up to John chapter 19. We'll be focused on verses 28 to 42 in our time this morning. And if you grab the Bible in front of you, it should be page 906 in the Pew Bible there. We've been working our way through the Gospel of John, and we're coming close to the end. And in the Gospel of John, we heard that Jesus' hour had not yet come. His hour had not yet come. And here in our reading this morning, the hour had come. And in our passage this morning, we see our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ on the cross, giving up his life for sinners like you and me. Let's read the word of God together, beginning in verse 28 going to 42. The word of God reads, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, To fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, 
they laid Jesus there. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give thanks to you this morning. Lord, even just to read your scripture is an unparalleled grace. And Father, we ask that our familiarity with the death of your son would not allow us to miss again a precious opportunity, Lord, to be absolutely humbled before you. Lord, please cause our hearts to swell with gratitude that underneath the realization, Lord, that you so loved the world in this manner that you gave your only son, your only begotten son, so that all who believe would not perish but have eternal life. Thank you for giving your son, O Lord, to pay for our sins. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your work on the cross. Thank you for going in our place, dying for our salvation, and for also giving us the perfect example of what it looks like to love our Heavenly Father and also to love one another. Lord, we ask that by the power of your Spirit, through the preaching of your Word, that you would help us to leave this building today filled with zeal and eagerness to follow your Son and to walk the way of the cross. We ask this in the mighty name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Brothers and sisters, friends, the way of the cross is not the easy way. And if you're here and you've put your faith in Christ, You've answered the call to deny yourself and to pick up your cross and to follow him whatever comes your way. And you look at Christ and you see what it cost him. You look at Christ and you see the path, the way that he has called you to take as you follow in his footsteps. And it is not, brothers and sisters, an easy way. It is a path of persecution. It is a road of great difficulty and trials. It will cost you everything to follow him. The Lord Jesus walked this road. We see the culmination of that journey in our passage here this morning. And as we look at it, we notice that there is absolutely nothing enviable about what he is enduring. There's nothing comfortable about the road that Christ has taken. Nothing enviable about the rejection, the hatred, the oppression, the judicial injustice, the mocking, the stripping, the beating, the lashing. Spitting, piercing, lifting, hanging that our Lord Jesus experienced on the way to the cross and on the cross. The humiliation he experienced is unimaginable. The pain and anguish he felt inconceivable. Yet he endured all this while being perfectly innocent 
without them being able to find any guilt in him. And all the while being perfectly, sovereignly in control of all things, he went willingly and laid down his life willingly. Why? Why? Surely, if you were to look at the path that he was going to take, a smart person would look at that and say, you know, that should be avoided at all costs. Or, or maybe you think that, oh, well, if, if you know, if, if surely that's the, the way that someone needed to go, they would only go that way if they were forced and compelled by outside forces and they had no choice and it was against their will. Yet here we are, the Lord Jesus he, 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 he even says in another passage that, uh, do you not realize that I could dispatch legions of angels to destroy all of my en- enemies in a, in a moment? But how would the scripture be fulfilled? Why suffer so much? Why go this road of trial and anguish and pain and the cross? Why would Jesus go that way and why would millions of Christians follow him in doing the exact same thing? This is absolute foolishness to the world. It makes no sense, humanly speaking, if this life is the only life that that there is. It looks like defeat. It looks like loss. So why would anyone do it? Why would you answer the call to take up your cross and to follow him? Why would you willingly walk the way of the cross. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I think that this is a helpful thing for you to consider because you, you, you probably see Christians and see Jesus as someone who, who, who just you're dumbfounded by because you, you don't understand why would they do that. I hope that you come to understand why Christ and we do that. And that you see and believe in Christ and find that Christ in the way to the cross is true, life-changing, soul-saving, spirit-filled wisdom from God. For you who have believed in Jesus this morning, if you're following him, I hope that this is an encouragement for you to remember the path that you're on, the path that you've decided to walk, and the reasons why you are walking that path. And so the main idea for this morning is that in the last moments of his life and in his death and burial, Jesus shows us why those who love the Father are willing to walk the way of the cross. So let's get into the first reason together. Why do those who love the Father, and why did Jesus willingly walk the way of the cross? Number one, because Jesus and all those who have followed him know and love the Father's will. Jesus knows and loves the Father's will. And and we see that in verse 28, in just sort of a passing statement. It said, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished. How in the world could Jesus know that he had accomplished all he needed to accomplish unless he knew the will of God? Jesus knew the will of his Father, and he loved it. And Jesus knew the will of his Father in a a way unique that we we would never understand. He's the eternal Son of God who has always dwelled with the Father. 
And in John 5, Jesus says in verse 20 that the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And so it seems like there's a sort of direct line between the Father and the Son that is unique to those two persons of God, which we ourselves do not have the same experience of. But yet there's another way that Jesus also knows the will of the Father, which is a way all of us can know the will of the Father and be absolutely certain of what the Father's will is, and that is by virtue of learning and studying the Scriptures. Jesus loved the Scriptures. Jesus meditated on the Scriptures. Jesus knew the Scriptures. And Jesus and all of us who study and learn the Scriptures see in the Scriptures the perfect pleasing, wonderful, wise will of God revealed. Jesus would say in Luke 22, verse 37, I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And, uh, and then a quote from Isaiah 53, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And then Jesus says, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. So if you will study the scriptures, you also will know the will of God. And if you will listen to Christ, you will also know the will of God because the Father sent the Son to reveal his will, which is a plan of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. It's that that even though God is holy and that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, God made a way by sending his Son who became human and lived a perfect life in our place and then died a sacrificial, substitutionary, atoning death on the cross and then rose from the grave on the third day that if we see and believe his Son, we will be forgiven of our sins and have a right relationship with the Father. We will be given everlasting life. We will be forgiven of all of our sins. And God will prove himself faithful to his promises. And he'll send his son again who will come to judge the living and the dead and to establish his kingdom and bring in a new heaven and a new earth where perfect righteousness and peace will be enjoyed by God and his people forevermore. How in the world would all those things come to pass? How would God affect that wonderful will? He would do it through his son. And the son knew the will of the father. And those who know the father and love the father know his will too because someone came to them like us and told us this wonderful news. The Lord Jesus knows and loves the father's will. And it's why he willingly and why we willingly walk the way of the cross. Jesus knew knew full well that the way of the cross meant for him an actual literal cross. He knew that it would require his death. It wasn't just that he was going to be righteous and he was going to suffer a lot, but no, he knew that his suffering would culminate in his death. And this is why he said in John chapter 2, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. But he was talking about the temple of his body. John 3, 14, Jesus says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Likewise, in John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. For this reason, the Father loves me. Hear that. Why? Because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. I have the authority Excuse me, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. 
So why does Jesus willingly walk the way of the cross? It's because he knows and loves the Father's will. No matter how much suffering, even death is going to be required on this road, and yet he still goes. He willingly walks the way of the cross because it is that way that the love of the Father for the Son and the love of the Son for the Father and the love of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit for sinners would be made known and salvation would be offered and accomplished. He was willing to walk the way of the cross because he loved the will of his Father. And so should we. Are you walking in accordance with the will of God? Do you love the will of God? Do you know the will of God? Do you read the scriptures? Do you seek to understand what he requires and what he commands? Do you understand his will for those who are following Christ? Do you you understand that his, his will for you is to love God and to love your neighbors and to preach Christ crucified and to make disciples and live righteous lives and call neighbors and friends to repentance and to follow Christ, to to abhor what is evil, to cling to what is good? Do you you know that his will includes many, many difficulties and trials and losses and attacks and slanders and persecutions and even death? Do you understand that and still say in your heart, still I will follow? The only reason you could do so is by the power of the Spirit and because the Spirit has made you, through the work of the Son, love the Father and what the Father is doing in this world. So we willingly walk the way of the cross because we know and love the will of the Father. God's will for Christ was suffering, then glory. God's will for those who follow Christ is suffering, and then glory. Paul would say in Romans chapter 8 that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed. That is the will of of the Father. So that's the first reason. Second reason why Jesus and those who love the Father willingly walk the way of the cross is because they love to finish the Father's work. They love to finish the Father's work. There's nothing, you guys, right? Actually, a few things in my life right now, I won't say nothing, few things in my life right now uh, that make me more happy than asking my children to do something and to see that they did that task and they finished it completely. Uh, You know, go clean your room. Okay, I cleaned it. (laughs) I go up and look. I'm like, what? What are you talking about? Like, this is out. That's out. Like, I mean, you didn't even, what's going on here? How come there's still, you know, can you guys clean up the stairs? How come there's still like five stairs with stuff, you know, still sitting on it? I I thought I I asked you to clean that back area. Why, Why is everything still left out? But when I go and I see and then, whoa. Wow, I asked you, and you did it, and, and thank you. Good job. <laughs> Brings me great joy. It is a, a, a good thing for a son, a child, son or daughter, to finish the work of their father. And the Lord Jesus exemplifies that perfectly. Look at this in verse 28. It says that Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said uh, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst, And then verse 30 says that when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Do you realize 
that there was no part of the heart of Jesus that was unwilling or that was going to allow any work that the Father had given to the Son for the Son not to fulfill it. His love for the Father was shown and that everything and anything the Father has asked me to do, I'm going to do it and I'm going to finish it completely. And this is why Jesus can say these three words in English, but one word in Greek, it is finished. He's willing to finish the task, even if that means more mocking and more torment. The soldiers bring to him a jar full of sour wine or excuse me, the the sponge that they dip into the jar, and they they bring it and hold it to Jesus' mouth. And and you might think, well, uh, okay, obviously after you've been whipped and scourged and you're hanging on a cross, uh, you're going to be terribly thirsty. Jesus says, I thirst. And it's almost like the soldiers have set it up, you know, having done this a few times. You know, this is like their full-time job. Uh, We'll wait. And when it happens, we'll have something for them. And so what happens here? They put sour wine and offer it to Jesus in a moment where he's just dying for thirst. And they put it to his lips, and he tastes it. One article that I read mentioned that to mix large amounts of myrrh and uh, leave it overnight in wine would by the next morning uh, so saturate the solution that it would be as impossible to drink as gasoline or vinegar. So this is a cruel joke. This is a, let's just add more insult to, to an already, you know, crucifying and dying person. Wait for them to get thirsty and then let's offer them this. Yet in spite of all this, the sun is still going to finish. He's still going to finish what has been given to him by the Father. And so he tastes it. He says it is finished, bowed his head, and gave up his spirit. The words gave up his spirit, I think, are important because in them we see an indication of the truth that, as Jesus mentioned in John 10, no one takes my life from me, I lay it down. So Jesus gave up, handed over his spirit. His work was finished, and he could hand his life over. He completed the Father's will perfectly, completely. And those words, it is finished, are so good for us, so um, just good and comforting and glorious that we should just slow down and savor them. It is finished. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22 says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Likewise, later in the passage, that Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And in a chapter later, in chapter 10, verse 14, by a single offering, Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. How could it be that that Jesus would not deal with sin when he came again, except for this fact, that it is finished. How could it be that we are perfected for all time by a single offering unless it were true that on the cross it really was finished? How could it be that that Jesus 
would be, would be our founder and perfecter or our author and finisher of our faith unless he really finished it on the cross in our place. It is finished. My sins, finished. Your sins, if you're in Christ, finished. All of them, finished. Isn't that good news? Well, what can compare to that? All our guilt, all our shame, all the condemnation we deserve, brother, sister, finished. Thank you, Lord. Oh, we, and we did nothing to deserve it. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was he. Full redemption can it be. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Friends, Christ loved the Father too much to not finish the Father's work completely. And if he didn't finish the Father's work completely, then the plan and work of salvation for us would be left unfinished and we would still be dead in our sins with no hope. But he finished it. He finished all the work the Father gave him to do. Just as he said in John 4, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Those who love the Father, you guys, love to finish his work. And I just want to bring this as a point of application to you. You have a unique work that your heavenly Father has given to you. The place that you were born, the family situation that you were born into, the neighborhood that you have, the friends that you have, everything that has happened to you in your life, the fact that you are still living and you're a part of a church and that you're in Christ and the way you came to Christ and the gifts that the Holy Spirit has blessed and given, you, given to you, all of those things together all of those things together show you that the Father has a unique plan for you, a unique work for you to carry out that no one else can carry out by virtue of having different work given to them from the Father. And so my encouragement to you is finish the work. I know that you're not going to you know, go and die on a literal cross and atone for the sins of the world. But that doesn't mean that you don't follow Christ, you don't lay down your life, you don't walk in humility, you don't walk in sacrificial, selfless love, serving the people around you and preaching Christ and endure great hardship. Yes, go do all those things. Fulfill the unique work, brother, sister, that God has given you. You know, at the end of the Gospel of John, Peter looks back at John and is like, Lord, you know, what about him? How's he going to die? And, and Jesus says, like, Peter, you don't worry about him. You follow me. Okay? So you all can look around at the people next to you who you've been envying and coveting their walk with the Lord and repent. Because God's giving you a unique work that you get to walk out with him that's beautiful and glorious and that you need the power of God at work in you to accomplish. And just do it. Don't fail. Don't give up. 
Don't, don't, don't act like, you know, uh, I'm going to go do something else. Finish the work. Are you 20? Finish the work. Are you 60? Finish the work. Are you 80? Finish the work. The Father has given you good works. Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 10 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And then listen clearly to this. Please hear this. For we are his workmanship. Do you realize that? You're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. You think, how do you know, Jeff, that really God has a work for me to do? Well, because it says right here that he created you in Christ for good works, prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So you have good works ahead of you that are unique to you that you are to walk in. So finish. Don't grow tired. Don't grow distracted. Don't grow lazy. Don't grow weary. Finish. This is not a work that originates in us, but a work that the, in the sovereign wisdom of God he has given to us. In our passage, we see two disciples who I think begin to show us that they've taken up their cross and followed Jesus. We got Joseph of Arimathea and also Nicodemus mentioned here. And when we look in verse 38, we see first Joseph of Arimathea. It says that he was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, uh, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. So it seems like uh, up until this point, Joseph was kind of this undercover believer, possibly one of those types of uh, believers that John had called out earlier in the gospel, that for the fear of the Jews, they were not you know, openly following Christ because they're, they're afraid of being ex expelled from the synagogue. And so probably that's what's going on with Joseph of Arimathea. And so you, know, you can be se secret disciple of Jesus for a while, but when you go to Pilate, and you ask for the body of Jesus to, to put him in your new tomb? Everybody's going to know. <laughs> There's no hiding that. Well, wait, well, where'd they put his body? Well, you, yeah, this guy Joseph. Joseph Arimathea, you've heard of him? Yeah, we've all heard of him. He's a prominent guy. He's well known. Yeah, he took the body of Jesus. Wait, Joe. Joseph took the body of Jesus? <laughs> yeah, you know, member of the Sanhedrin? How, what? What's going on here? Joseph could not be a secret disciple. He decided to not be a secret disciple any longer. And he went. And I, I love uh, that one commentary says that it was an uncommonly courageous act for Joseph to disassociate himself from the Sanhedrin and show his sympathy with Jesus, who had been so, ignom uh, I don't even know how to say that word, uh, condemned and killed. He will have to be aware that he had no right to make the request since he was unrelated to Jesus, but he was equally aware that none of the brothers of Jesus would make this, uh, take this uh, step, attempt to take this step. And then it says, his position and wealth naturally will have commended him to Pilate. Nevertheless, he should have been denied what he asked in view of the nature of Jesus' offense against Caesar. Pilate acceded to it in line with John's whole account of the trial of Jesus. Pilate knew well that the charge against Jesus was unfounded, so he released the body to Joseph. One commentator's view on that. What, what, a, what a bold act 
for Joseph to do. He understood that he had work that he was given to do. And he did it. Another person we see also had sort of a, you know, which we all have this, right? We all have that time when we're in darkness and we're not following Christ and then we come into the light. And Nicodemus is, shows up in this passage and it says that Nicodemus, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. And him and Joseph go and take the body of Jesus and wrap it, uh, bound it in linen cloths with the spices uh, as is the burial custom of the Jews, and then they put him in the new tomb, which no one had been in, in this garden. Now, Nicodemus, we are told in John 3, comes to Jesus at night. You could read about that interaction in John chapter 3. Again, though, Nicodemus shows up in John chapter 7, where he's in the midst of uh, the, the Pharisees and the chief priests, and he, he, he essentially is advocating for fair uh, trial for Jesus, or that Jesus would at least be examined and you know, uh, that they would listen to him before they just condemn him. And he kind of gets made fun of in, in that situation. But now here we have Nicodemus show up again, and he's carrying, you guys, 75 pounds of spices, of myrrh and aloes, which are used to honor the dead and to help cover the smell. And, and that probably doesn't mean much to us. We're like, what, 75 pounds? Uh, what, any of you guys ever done anything like that? No, that's pretty foreign to us. Well, just so we, we kind of understand it, uh, 75 pounds would amount to about a lifetime or 100 years of the average laborer's pay. That is an insane amount. It's why why we, he's, uh, we, have, we have statements that Nicodemus and, jo, uh, and, and Joseph were wealthy. So he comes with 75 pounds, a hundred years worth of the average worker's pay. And he and Joseph, with the tomb and with the spices, communicate something very important. That the one who we are burying is a king deserving of dignity that, is, that would be for a king. And so we see through their choices and through the way that they walked a willingness to honor Christ no matter what it cost them, whether that was monetary, whether that was social. And so I just ask you, Joseph had a tomb, Nicodemus had spices, what do you have? You're like, I don't got a hundred, <laughs> I don't have a hundred years worth of an average laborer's pay. That's okay. But whatever you have, friends, it's what God has given you and use it to honor the Father and the Son. F finish the work the Father has given to you. Those who love the Father, finish the work that he has given to them. And this leads to our last point. This is, so why do those who love the Father, and why does Jesus willingly walk the way of the cross? The third reason is this, because they love to fulfill the Father's word. They love to fulfill his word. 
Why would Jesus willingly walk the way of the cross and even to his death and his burial? Because he knew that his father already promised he would. If you're feeling down and you're feeling discouraged, it should encourage you to know that you're doing the very thing that your father in heaven has already promised and prophesied that you would do. In verse 28, Jesus, it says, Jesus said to fulfill the scripture. Again, in verse 36, it says, these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. So the unfolding of the crucifixion and death and burial of Jesus is the unfolding, the fulfillment, and the completion of the word of God. It had been prophesied. It had been written. It had been declared. It had been promised. So let's look at a few of these. Really, this passage is a goldmine of fulfilled prophecies, but only look at a couple with you. The first one was the putrid wine that was given to Jesus and the thirsting that he was experiencing. Uh, It seems that this is a, a reference to Psalm 69. And in Psalm 69, we have a Psalm of David where he's lamenting oppression and violence and mocking that he is suffering for the sake of being a righteous man, for the sake of being the Lord's anointed. And it contains multiple cries for God to save and deliver his righteous servant who is suffering severely and is near death. And one of the ways that Israel would be able to identify the true Messiah, the son of David, was to see him experience and perfectly fulfill the same trials and treatment that David had experienced and wrote about. David knew and expected that his imperfect, righteous, suffering son, who would be the anointed king of Israel, who would have a kingdom that would never end, he understood that he himself and what he did and experienced and wrote foreshadowed the perfect, righteous suffering of the son of God, who God promised to him. In Psalm 69, verses 1 through 4, we see, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink deep in mire where there is no foothold. I've come deep into waters, and the the flood sweeps over me. I'm weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. I've been crying out to God and crying out to God that that, uh, my throat is parched. He says, My eyes grow dim waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Then jumping down to verses 19 and 21, where where, where we see the the reference, it says, You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. In Luke 22, verse 36, it says that the soldiers mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine. Jesus dying of, uh, of thirst in that moment, crying out for, because he's thirsty, is then mocked again and given this terrible wine, just as David wrote. A second prophecy We see in verse 36, it says that these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. 
In verse 31 and 32, it says that since it was the day of preparation so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, uh, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that, they, uh, that their legs might be broken and that it might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. And you're thinking maybe, well, what does that have to do with anything? Well, if you remember that John the Baptist said of Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And if you go back and you, you, you think about what God had said about the Passover lamb, that when he brought Israel out of Egypt in the Exodus, that they were to slaughter a lamb and put its blood on the doorpost so that they would not be destroyed, so that their house would be passed over. They were told that in Exodus 12, verse 46, that this Passover lamb shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. Also, Numbers 9, verse 12 says the same thing, that uh, they shall leave none of it until the morning, nor break any of its bones. According to the statute for the Passover, they shall keep it. And so if Jesus is going to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, you could kind of, you know, Get a hint of that. You could have sort of God's omnipotent providential testimony in the fact that the person on the left of Jesus, the person on the right of Jesus, both had their legs shattered. But Jesus, the Passover lamb, sat there, and because he had already died, did not have his bones broken. Another passage that this could be pulling on as well is in Psalm 34. Where, where David gives a, a psalm of praise for deliverance. And he writes, uh, he says that when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. He says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. So this psalm speaks about the righteous man who suffers great affliction as being providentially protected from having his bones broken. And so these passages together show us the unique situation that Jesus found himself in, the, 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 the fulfillment of these different uh, prophecies that had been, had been described, and he, he meets them and fulfills them in a way that shows God's protection and approval, not one of his bones was broken. A third prophecy that is fulfilled, we see in verse 37, it says that another scripture says they will look on him whom they have pierced. If we look at verse 34, because the soldiers came to him and realized that he was already dead, decided not to break his legs, one of the soldiers, I guess to make sure he was dead, pulls out his spear and thrusts it through the side of Jesus. And John the Apostle, who saw this with his own eyes, says, And at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you may believe. These things took place so that the scripture might be fulfilled. They will look on him whom they have pierced. That, that statement to look on him whom they have pierced comes from uh, comes from Zechariah chapter 12. And in the context of Zechariah chapter 12, 
It's a prophecy concerning the last days. And Jerusalem is surrounded by enemy nations that are, are, are about to, uh, that want to conquer Jerusalem. And in, in, in the passage, the Lord defends the, the city from the attack of the surrounding nations and supernaturally empowers them to fight and to conquer their enemies. And then this wonderful thing is promised. It says in verse 10, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Who's the one speaking in this passage? Well, if we look at the subject, we see the behold I, I declares the Lord, I will strike, I will make, I will seek to destroy, I will pour out and so that they will look on me. The one speaking is the Lord, is Yahweh. So how does the Lord, how is Yahweh pierced? Only if God the, Father, God the Father sends God the Son, who is also Yahweh the Lord, who puts on human flesh and comes and lives a perfect life and dies a death that he did not deserve to die on the cross. And then on the cross, because his legs weren't broken and he was already dead, he was pierced. That's how. So this prophecy, hundreds of years before the time of Jesus, was already showing that there would be a divine Messiah who would be God in the flesh, who would be pierced, and who would pour out his spirit on Jerusalem and on the nations, and that they would look to him for salvation. And so this is huge. John is, John is saying that, that Jesus is the fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 10, or chapter 12, verse 10. He's the speaker. He's Yahweh. He's the pierced one. He's the one who they look on and are saved. He's the hope of Israel. He's the guarantee that they will turn and believe in Christ and be saved one day in the future. Jesus loved the Father. He loved to fulfill the Father's word. And so should we. Do, do you guys realize that there's not just prophecies about the Messiah, but there's also prophecies about the followers of the Messiah? I'm running out of time, so I can't go into some of that with you. But there's, there's specific things that, that are going to happen. Just one that I'll mention is at the end of Psalm 22, which is a psalm that also is a, a messianic psalm. It says, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. And it says, posterity or seed or spiritual followers shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. That it is finished. So that passage is essentially saying that the followers of the Messiah are going to be teaching others and their children in multiple generations that the Messiah has done it. The king is conquered. We can have salvation in him, live for him, follow him, love, 
his will. Love his work. Love to fulfill his word. You see, not a single time we gather together and worship God, not a single time we say anything about Jesus to someone, not a single time we walk in obedience is outside of what God has promised we would do. He promised that his son would have the obedience of the nations. Your obedience to the son has been prophesied. And so every time you follow after him and obey him, you get the joy of fulfilling prophecy. How many of you think it's cool like when God uses you to answer prayer? Someone's prayer. That's a pretty cool thing. How about to be used by God to answer God, you know, to, to be part of the fulfillment of God's prophecies and promises? You know, some people are like, I just want to live for something greater than myself. I want to be a part of something great. I can guarantee you that there's nothing greater than being a part of the fulfillment of God's perfect, glorious will. Glorifying his son and giving him the name above all names and all people bowing down and worshiping him. And the knowledge of the glory of the Lord covering the earth as the waters cover the seas. So friends, brothers, sisters, live for him. Live for him. Finish the work. Love his will and fulfill his word. May the Lord bless you and fill you with his spirit and enable you and us to do this for his glory and our joy. Amen, church. Amen.